In his now very famous commencement speech at Kenyon College, the late author David Foster Wallace began his speech with a story about two fish. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the hell is water? I like this story because it gets at what we've been trying to do on this season of The People's Theology. Answer the question, what makes our world what it is? And so far we've explored certain feelings of our current cultural moment. In our last episode, we looked at the story that gets us to this current cultural moment. But all of that is basically an attempt to say, what is water? What makes our world what it is? What are the things that are happening, the forces that are at work, the structures underneath it all that we don't notice because it is the water we swim in or the air that we breathe? What makes our world what it is? This is a standard requirement of U.S. commencement speeches, the deployment of didactic little parable-ish stories. The story thing turns out to be one of the better, less bullshitty conventions of the genre. But if you're worried that I plan to present myself here as the wise older fish explaining what water is to you younger fish, please don't be. I am not the wise old fish. The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is that in the day-to-day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have a life-or-death importance. Or so I wish to suggest to you on this dry and lovely morning. This is our last episode of The People's Theology before we go on break for the summer. And when we come back, we're going to explore what we do about the world that we live in. Continue the conversation, but start to look at practices and responses to this reality. But before we get there, what I want to do is look at five consequences from the story of last week. Five consequences from the wager of modernity. Five realities that we live with as a result of the unraveling structures around us. Now that might sound needlessly academic or ethereal, but I promise that these realities play out in our everyday lives. They shape how we engage the world, how we see ourselves, and how we see and engage with God. Which means that they matter a lot, because they're basically the water we live in. To do that, we're going to break up today's show into basically five mini-arcs. Small little acts that will walk us through each of these different realities as they build on one another to construct a picture of the world that we live in. And here is my hope, in this episode and in the last, is that if nothing else, we would find the resources to question what feels natural. To question what we feel is normal and realize that the way we often see the world is not how it's always been, nor how it will always be. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always wrong, but it does mean that it's not always right. And if we learn to question it, to see it for what it is, someday we might learn to take off the metaphorical glasses and see the world and engage it entirely differently. Thank you.
The movie The Matrix is a favorite for pop philosophy or couch philosophy of all sorts. We love to talk about all the different implications that are happening within the movie and how that relates to our own world today. And specifically, the one I think about most is the red pill, blue pill. Do you want to know the truth or do you want to continue living in your life as a lie? And I think all of that's fine. I'm a little annoyed by most of it, but it's fine. But what I'm interested in, what I think is super curious, is the premise that the Matrix sits on altogether. Kind of the initial philosophical foundation of the movie that allows it to be a plausible movie. And in plausible, I just mean a story that you can follow. Now, that initial premise is that humans have been duped into believing that life on Earth is normal and regular. We go to work, we have families, we go out with friends like we always did. But the truth is, we are basically brains in vats living out imaginary lives in a programmed existence. While the real world is an apocalyptic wasteland. This... This isn't real. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. It's that notion that is interesting. Because that philosophical premise that you could, as just a brain, experience the world as real is an implication that is entirely unique to our current cultural moment. Now, we talked about this in the last episode, but if we look at our kind of historical trajectory, as we have flattened out the plane of existence and the plane of significance, leveling out the profane and the mundane with what was considered sacred, and as God became more and more distant and transcendent and a figure that is disconnected from reality, there are these unintended consequences that begin to play themselves out. And one is what philosopher Charles Taylor calls the world becomes disenchanted and humans become buffered selves. One of the implications of that, which you could argue is a good implication of that, is that the world stops being perceived as magical. So we begin to investigate it, we begin to reason about it, and we begin to believe that we can influence it through natural means. That's a part of this conversation. But more than anything else... At one point in time, people believed that the world around them was loaded with significance, loaded with meaning, that there was a depth to its substance, maybe a narrative to our reality. And if you were religious, you could say a blessedness to it. The world had an element. Maybe it was hard to define or hard to name or hard to diagnose, but it's this notion that there was more than met the eye. It was thick. Or to use theological language, you could say it was sacramental. But because of this shift, meaning doesn't come from a thing any longer, but from our minds. Significance is not something inherent to an object, but rather something we impose or perceive through our minds. So we make sense of the world via our mind. We engage the world via our mind. Because of that, because of this notion that meaning and significance is something that we perceive or impose, you can have a movie, The Matrix, which removes your body from the world. You no longer have to be embedded or embodied, engaging with the things around you. Instead, 
outside of that, stripped of all physical contact, stripped of all real, you can still have significant existence via perceiving and engaging the world through your mind, even in a computer program. This is a new idea in terms of the history of humankind. In the past, we saw and understood the world as loaded with depth and significance, and we understood ourselves to be what Charles Taylor calls porous, meaning the world around us could impact us, not just by engaging our minds, but because of who we were, that we weren't just protected in a shell that is our body where our mind was like distant and insulated. Instead, we were who we are. We, we were our bodies. We were more than just our minds. And so the world could impact us in non-cognitive ways. So what happens when we become buffered selves in a flattened world? Well, on the one hand, a lot of really good things. But at the same time, we feel the flatness of the world. If the world and the material is simply mechanic and empty, then so is what we do. And this leads, I think, to a whole slew of existential crises, both small and large, because we are forced to make our own lives and actions meaningful because they are not intrinsically. We have to make the world meaningful because it is not intrinsically. And we miss that we are more than our minds, and so we miss the formative power of all sorts of things in the world. There's lots of ways that we could walk this through, but I think literary critic and philosopher Terry Ingleton just makes a super fascinating point when he says, quote, people resort to all forms of bogus spirituality as a much needed refuge. A gullible belief in wood nymphs or magical crystals or theosophy or alien spacecraft is simply the flip side of their worldliness. It is no wonder that Terra and packaged occultism and ready-to-serve transcendence should be so fashionable in the Hollywood Hills. End quote. What he's saying is that we have so divested the world of its depth and its sacramentality that we go about fixing that by plastering over it with new but weak expressions, whether that's crystals or superhero movies these attempts to find some kind of sense of moreness, of transcendence, of thickness, of depth. And yet, at the end of the day, they are not sufficient. But the real question is, does it have to be that way? Is the world that flat, that insignificant? So once upon a time, the world was sacred, thick and full of meaning, and humans were porous and engaged in all of that. At least that's what we thought about ourselves. Well, if we thought that, and if we thought the world was sacred, well, that has implications for how we live our lives. And so we see ourselves and our world as full of meaning, and that means we also see our relationships and connections to the people of the world as sacred and full of meaning.
The notion that we are individuals or autonomous is, again, fairly new. Historically, the world was oriented towards the collective. We were a part of something bigger and more than ourselves. And our actions and our thoughts, they had communal consequences. And this is true in a few different ways that we don't often think about. For example, if the world is collective and our actions have communal consequences, well, that also means that our identity is wrapped up in our community. So we see ourselves through the lens of the people around us. There's no isolated or individualized identity. No, we are who we are connected to. Second, our actions are connected to community. So either we don't just get to do whatever we want, we don't get to, to engage in it wherever we want, we can't just leave the community and, and go be whatever we want, because what we do and how we live affects the people around us in ways that we often don't perceive. Those first two features of collective identity are more familiar. But the place that we often forget, or maybe don't think about at all, is that not just our identity or actions are communal, but so also are our beliefs. 600 years ago, there's very little room in a community for a heretic, someone who disbelieves what the rest of the community believes, because even our disbelief isn't individual. But it might have communal repercussions, at least that's how we see the world. But the buffered self is protected from all of that. It's protected and can disengage from communal obligation and collective connection. And there are some really good consequences to that. Like in our culture, we have a high respect for individuality, for autonomy, for what a person does and and a person's ability to achieve their own dreams. But it does change things. It changes the way that we engage with the world. Philosopher James K.A. Smith describes it this way, saying, quote, We are no longer a seamless cloth, a tight-knit social body. Instead, we are just a collection of individuals, like individual molecules in a social gas. This diminishes the ripple effects of individual decisions and beliefs. You're free to be a heretic. End quote. So what does this mean for us? Why is it relevant to our conversation about what our world is? Well, the answer to that is in this third piece. And it's what happens when you remove God from the world, strip the earth of its inherent significance and remove sacramentality or sacredness from our social relationships. And there is a feeling to that. When you remove meaning or significance from every single major human endeavor, we feel that. We feel that lack of significance or meaning. Jamie Smith, the philosopher, says that the bar for human flourishing has been lowered, meaning we just can't flourish as much. We don't have a vision for flourishing as much. This is in large part what you experienced right after World War II with the great existential and absurdism crises. We sort of know the world can't lead to flourishing or lead to significance and meaning, and so we have to somehow create our own sense of it and impose it on the world. But there's limits to that. It's artificial. It's mechanic. And as some of our greatest poets have shown us, it's empty. 
during the 1950s, you have all of these authors who later become known as beat authors. Guys like Allen Ginsberg or Kurt Vonnegut or Bukowski. And their whole writing is about this feeling that the world cannot produce meaning. That there is not enough significance in the way that we have constructed it. And that we have sold our lives to things that cannot produce true human flourishing. And in one of the most famous pieces from this moment, you get Allen Ginsberg lamenting that reality in the lives of his friends and family. You're probably familiar with this poem, Howl is maybe his most famous poem. And he reads it for the very first time in 1956 at Portland's Reed College. And I think it's worth listening to, to get at that feeling, what Charles Taylor called the malaise of modernity, because few things express that sense better than these words. What sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed open their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination? Moloch, ash cans and unobtainable dollars, children screaming under stairways, boys sobbing in armies. Moloch, Moloch, nightmare of Moloch, Moloch the loveless, mental Moloch, Moloch the heavy judger of men, Moloch the incomprehensible prison, Moloch whose buildings are judgment, Moloch the vast stone of war, Moloch the stunned governments, Moloch whose mind is pure machinery, Moloch whose blood is running money, Moloch whose eyes are a thousand blind windows, Moloch whose skyscrapers stand in the long streets like endless Jehovah's, Moloch whose factories dream and croak in the fog, Moloch whose smokestacks and antennae crown the cities, Moloch whose love is endless oil and stone, Moloch whose soul is electricity and banks, Moloch whose poverty is the specter of genius, Moloch whose fate is a cloud of sexless hydrogen, Moloch whose name is the mind. The story that Ginsburg is telling is just one of modern America. He's just highlighting all of these things that we use to make sense of the world. All these things that we put all of our energy and time and hope into. And then he's rewriting it in this kind of like religious pagan language to say what it really is. To reveal how empty and yet at the same time kind of nefarious it is. So it plays on our desires, but produces nothing. So it's empty. And yet it will destroy you. And that, I think, better than anything, gets at this malaise, this feeling of the modern moment. We have loaded something with so much hope to deal with the world stripped of significance. We've loaded institutions and projects with hope, vested them with significance, hoping that they would produce some sense of flourishing, and yet they haven't. At least not for everyone. And so then we're left with questions about what we do with that world, with these projects and promises and hopes. 
that have failed to deliver. Fourth shift is a changing in the perception and experience of time. Now, that might sound confusing at first, but it'll make sense by the end, I think. And here's the basic notion. Once upon a time, we viewed time as a construct, meaning it was something we experienced, but it wasn't necessarily something that was ultimate. In fact, there was something beyond the way we experienced time. There was something eternal, something transcendent, something infinite. And that was outside of our little box that we call time. And that was real, and that was ultimate, and that was bigger than what we experienced. But the more and more that our world was stripped of significance, and the more and more that God was removed from our world, and the more that we became buffered and isolated, the more that box of time became all there was. Today, there is not really anything outside of time, the temporal reality that we live in. There's no infinite other, no transcendent eternal. There's just now. And what that does is lead to a new sense of pressure. Time is something that is ticking down. Kronos is always behind us. And so we have to measure our days. We have to make sure that we fill them to their max because there is no other time to measure it by. Nothing eternal, nothing infinite. There is only the now. And so we feel the pressure of the now significantly more. There's this old Stephen King novel that was made into a terrible movie called The Langoliers. And I always think about it like this. We know what happens to today when it becomes yesterday. Waits for them. Waits for them. The timekeepers of eternity. Always following behind. Cleaning up the mess in the most efficient way possible. The characters in the movie are stuck in this weird in between space. They're not in the present time. And they're in that moment before the past is literally devoured by these creatures. And so they feel the imminent pressure of time coming after them. The more modern colloquialism for this would be FOMO, fear of missing out. And though we often think of that as just like a funny thing millennials do, I think it's better understood as a reality that we live in. We're afraid of missing out, afraid of wasting time more than maybe any other culture or generation before us because we feel the pressure of time more than any other generation or culture before us. Because today, the notion of no external eternality weighs the most. We have a small box of time, a limited number of days, and we're afraid of wasting it, afraid of missing out. Finally, the fifth shift, the fifth reality, 
which is really underneath all of this, is a fundamentally different way of seeing the world. All of it together. And in the last episode, I compared sort of the way we viewed the world like a Venn diagram. You know, these two circles, and they had a substantial amount of overlap. And whether that was the divine or the transcendent or just significance and meaning, there was a, a significant amount of overlap between those two circles. But slowly they began to separate, drift, float away from one another. Well, today, those two things are entirely separate. And one of the circles, maybe the transcendent circle or the significant circle, that's not anywhere to be found at all. And so what we're left with is just one circle. Charles Taylor describes it as saying, our view of the world went from a cosmos to a universe. And meaning that in a cosmos, we have this sense that the world is about more than itself. Maybe there's an order to it. There's a hierarchy to it. There's meaning implied and inherent in it. But you remove that thing from it, that meaning and significance, that transcendence and that other, and you're left with a universe, a natural place. Our world is unhooked from any sort of transcendent dependence. Now, what are we left with? What do we do with all of this information? Well, hopefully, we ask, is it true? Is this really how the world is, how it has to be? There's beautiful consequences of being this way, things that we've explored, but there's also negative consequences. And the question is, do we have to live with those things? Is that really how the world is? Are we as buffered as we think we are? Do we fail to see the sacredness of our relationships? Is our view of our own flourishing, of our own possibilities, is it actually limited by this notion of the world? Is time really chasing us down and pressuring us the way that we think it is? And are we truly unhooked of any sort of transcendent dependence. Is that true? We'll explore this more in future episodes, but I'm going to reveal my cards and say I think the answer to that question is no. At least not fully. And more importantly, I think there's a whole lot more available for us whole lot more than we can't even imagine because our imagination is so framed by these realities but once we see it it might be hard to stop you've been listening to the people's theology Brought to you by Missio Day Community Church and the Gospel Collective in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information about the show or about the church or about the things that we're doing, check out our website at missioslc.com. And this episode is the final one for this spring season. We're going to go on break for the summer and come back in the fall. 
But if you want to be a part of the conversation and you want to add your voice to what we're talking about or move the conversation in a certain direction, then send us an email during the summer at podcast at missiodayslc.com with whatever your thoughts are or questions are or suggestions are for where we go in the future. And then when we come back in the fall, we're going to continue exploring the same kind of conversations we've been having in season two, but with a focus on what we do about it. How do we see the world differently? How do we engage it differently? What practices or tools are there for us to unpack it, live differently, and respond well? And in the meantime, make sure you share this episode with somebody you think is having these same kinds of conversations or questions, and go and review us on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show and join in on what we're talking about. Thanks for listening.